Hi, I'm Kieran Cook, and welcome to At Source Podcast, a place where natural health and well-being are at the forefront of the conversation. Gain useful insights direct from the source from doctors, industry experts, wellness advocates, and everything in between. This is a place for busy people who want to get to the core of health and wellness with information about the latest health advances and trends. In this series, we talk with and learn from inspiring leaders from all walks of life, touching on important topics that will help answer some of the key questions about natural health, well-being, fitness, and all things direct from the source. A warm welcome today to Dr. Jill Webster and Ben Harris. We are here at the At Source podcast, powered by Nature Bee. We have a very special panel discussion with medical microbiology scientist Ben Harris and immunologist Dr. Jill Webster. Dr. Jill Webster has more than 28 years of experience in the biotechnology sector, emphasising early drug development to treat human disorders by developing strategies to harness the immune system. Her expertise in immunology has seen her work as both a founding entrepreneur and private consultant for both domestic and international biotechnology companies and develop an award-winning natural product. Currently, she is the founder of Immunostrategy Limited and chief scientist at Nature B. Ben Harris is a medical microbiology scientist with 40 years of experience. Harris has a particular focus on infection prevention and control, epidemiology, emerging antibiotic resistance, and its relationship to our microbiome and adverse health outcomes. He leads the New Zealand Infection Prevention and Control Consultancy based in Christchurch and Auckland, where he provides New Zealand-wide IPC consultancy services and is also co-founder of Sani Pure. Well, thank you very much for joining us, both of you, today. Ben and Jill, I wanted to start our chat by asking about your journey into healthcare and research. Where did your passion for health and science begin? So perhaps, Jill, can you help us start us off today? My passion really started um, with my PhD. And I was fortunate in those days to already have the opportunity to work on the other side of the curtain in a hospital surgical ward on small bowel transplantation, which at that time was the only organ that could not be successfully transplanted into man. And working with the surgical team, I met such distress and lack of hope for quality of life in these patients for which there was no treatment option. And that whole journey as part of that team, which resulted in my research that I published in my thesis, really, really unraveled and revealed my intrinsic passion. I realised I had to want to do something to help humans. Um, At that time, um, a lot of science was a a little bit... um, less applied. And whilst a lot of my colleagues were working on molecular cloning techniques and identifying new reagents, already I was able to wrap my arms around real meaningful clinical situations. That then led me into my postdoctoral career where I actively sought out opportunities to study other diseases I hadn't met, in particular cancer, and again, working on natural um, occurring cancers in in human patients, so biopsies, and also studying their immune system. And really, that opened the door to my biotechnology career, where I spearheaded a whole new program, taking the immune system, learning how to harness it and develop novel mechanisms to power it along and use it as opposed to shut it down. 
And, and lately, I've become much more interested in the gut system and its role in maintaining a healthy immune system. Again, looking at novel ways to use foodstuffs that are rich in bioactives to stimulate good health systems. Mm, thanks, Jill. Let's uh, look at some impressive background. And I've learned a few things already today that I didn't know about you. Ben, how about you? With your 40 years of experience, can you take us back a little bit? Well, my passion, I guess, started when I was a boy, probably before I was teens, in the daily newspaper. I used to see cartoons on science, and um, that got me really interested. I was a very isolated rural boy, and this was fascinating. It introduced me to science on a daily cartoon. Then part of that, and part of people I knew, I could see science clearly fitted in well with health. And I remember when I first applied for my first job, one of the questions was, why do you want this career? And I perhaps naively said, ideally, I wanted to take the bad bugs off the street and put them in a Petri dish where they can be kept an eye on. But then after that, when I did get into health and the hospitals, I could see in intensive care units and probably like Jewel with these um, new transplants were happening at the time, renal transplants and leukemia bone marrow transplants, that science could change many people's lives measurably and keep them alive. And then from there, all the rest with antibiotics, microbiome, etc. And our whole paradigm shifts in understanding. That's what got my, my passion going. <laughs> and now to share that with others outside of the medical system as well. Hmm. Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for that uh, background. Uh, it's interesting that you touched on cartoons. And Jill, you and I have talked about cartoons and the power of pictures and how they speak, you know, more than a thousand words, really. Um, and it's nice seeing how that visual imagery can actually be applied to science. So much explaining can be done so simply, I guess, through the power of a cartoon. Ben, you talk about microbiome quite a bit um, just you know, as we've sort of kicked off, I think just for the sake of our listeners, it might be good to just better understand in simple terms what that actually means. Yes, it's fascinating. They're all of our microbes, which are all our bacteria, viruses, fungi, that are part of our ecosystem. And so they make up our ecological garden, if you like, within us. Um, but every living microorganism, or bug, call it what you will, bacteria, virus, and fungi, make up our microbial garden, uh, which is part of our ecosystem, and that's our microbiome. There are different ecosystems on our skin compared to our gut, compared to genital, female genital flora, compared to our respiratory system. Um, system. They're all quite different microbiomes, but they all tie in with our immune system and and immunity. Just in terms of chatting about immunity, it's obviously a hot button topic right now. Um, so should we just start maybe with you, Jill? I'm just interested in, in why you think that immunity and microbiology is so important, particularly in this current environment as we face uh, a global pandemic. My views are very much linked to the interrelationship between my microbiology and the immune system. And often we consider microbes as a foe and not a friend. But really what we're learning with evolving technology platforms and the ability to study immune systems, what we've really identified is the nature of the reciprocity between microbes and immunity. 
So really, the way I look at it as we need to keep our friends. So what we're learning now is what are our friends, what are our commensals. So those are the bugs that do co-inhabit our body. And as Ben mentioned in our chat earlier, even in a sterile tissue, you can still find a, a bacterium. The question is, in my opinion, often the diseases, they've got out of their compartment into the wrong location. So it's location and number can be the difference between a healthy situation and a diseased situation. But very much, if I can go back to the gut, 80% of the immune system is decorated around the gut. We are all familiar now with gut bacteria and that comprises or constitutes the microbiome. And it's very clear now in further studies, for example, looking at um, diabetes, um, that um, an unhealthy microbiome can lead to disturbances that are unfavorable. But uh, on the other hand, that replenishing that compartment with healthy microbes can lead to the benefits via the interaction with the gut immune system. Okay, so uh, in terms of how this, I guess, impacts us right now as we face a global pandemic, just trying to understand and unpack what you're saying, how does this impact us right now? What we're looking at is increasing our immune resilience and that doesn't necessarily mean that um, one can prevent infection. It's about how our body tolerates, responds and eliminates the infection that's come our way. Um, different parts of the world facing the same infection, the same virus. Likely, if we look globally, there'll be different challenges depending where about in the world um, the, the patient is. For example, those that are malnourished intrinsically, one would predict they're much more likely to suffer adverse um, consequences compared to first world populations or our local New Zealanders who are better nourished. They may That has an impact on the um, robustness, day-to-day -day robustness of, of the immune system. Yeah. So, Ben, thoughts on this? Just adding in here, another layer? <laughs> <laughs> All of it. I agree with Jill totally. I think we tend to think of ourselves as me, but in actual fact, we may be only one-tenth of who we thought we were. So in terms of cell numbers, we may have something like 10 trillion of our own cells make up our physical body. But there may be 50 to perhaps 90 trillion of so-called them, microbes. And they have been part of us or our predecessors as symbiotic relationship, mainly in our gut flora, as Jules said, but not only there, skin and vaginal and respiratory and lung. And they are integral to our good health. So it's an ecosystem. It's not me, it is we, and they are predominant, and they have a much bigger effect on our lives, than including our moods, our whole immune responses, autoimmune illnesses, and all these other things, as does our environment. They're just ecosystems, because we eat food from the environment, eat your ecosystems. And the more diverse our diet is with taking in nutrients and such like, the better off our ecosystem is. 
And so we may, many processes, not only antibiotics, it may treat an infection that we have, and that's wonderful, and uh, it seems to work like a miracle, uh, but at the same time, the collateral damages, it treats a large part of our other 50 to 90 trillion microbes as well, which are part of our immune system. So you get a short-term gain by treating the initial slightly to moderately infected thumb, for instance, but you get a medium to long-term adverse health outcome. And following on also from what Jill said, in different societies around the world, we eat different things and such like, and it's perhaps notable with COVID-19. I talk to Africa, 40 to 60,000 people at a time quite often, and, and they were really, really worried about COVID. And a year ago, I said, just based on a hunch only, or a sociable, very sociable cultures, and all 1.2 billion of them in sub-Saharan Africa. But I think you may have, other than South Africa, comparatively little COVID. And they said, why? And I said, the disadvantage of being relatively financially poor is you're not pouring all sorts of medications down your throat like the rest of the industrialized world. So your microbiome is not being so affected. So your immunity, at a guess, may well be better. And so far, that's exactly what's happened. South Africa, which is wealthier, has been more prone to COVID, but the rest of Africa has had remarkably less. So these things come back to ecosystems, shared ecosystems, our diet and our soil ecosystem as well. Gosh, that's so interesting. Um, when you, you've referred to this uh, point around diet a couple of times now, What's an optimal diet? I think, unlike Drosophila fruit flies, it takes a long time to see <laughs> what is the optimal diet for humans who have uh, maybe a 30-year um, span. But we can look at those that live longest uh, in the world, and it tends to be multifactorial. Uh, part of it's the diet, and the diet is what feeds the microbiome in our gut. So if we have simple sugars, they're absorbed um, in the top of the gut where there's almost no microbes and they're absorbed there and if we have predominantly these simple sugars and such like that starves our microbiome i.e our immunity but if we have more fiber and i like to use the analogy there was a study done a few years ago where people very briefly people around the world could submit uh, samples a fecal sample and a swab and I think they got 25,000 of them or some such thing. And you also had to submit what, submit what your total diet was plus what your health history was. And it was shown the more you increased plant-based products, up to 25 different ones per week, it had correspondingly increased benefits in your overall health. Now, meat didn't matter. It's the variety in the plant-based products. And it didn't matter if there's only a tiny number. Even pepper and such like would add towards that. So those plant-based products help feed our 500 to 1,000 different species in our gut flora. And I think of it, it may or may not be, perhaps Jill will have another comment on this, it may or may not be so. I think of it as like NPK fertilizer in a vegetable garden. It works well. But if you have NPK plus trace elements, 
quite often if there happen to be some shortages in the garden, it will do a whole lot better. So I just like to think the 25 variety works like MPK fertiliser with trace nutrients for the optimal benefits. I like that. Jill, what do you think? I totally agree. And especially regarding your point on the soil microbiome. So what we see on the surface of the soil is a fraction, again, isn't it, Ben, of what's underneath the soil. And and this is a reason why I personally never wash my vegetables. I actually don't peel carrots. I, I do wash mud off potatoes. But I'm very conscious that there's nutritional value, not disease, in that dirty carrot or that root system. And I also agree with the point you made about all the trace minerals that also come through in the soil contamination or contact, rather. Um, These are essential for all our cellular processes. We know that, especially selenium, for example, which is part of um, the maintaining cell integrity. This is a pathway that stops the cancer cell living. It's a housekeeping process that and a lot of these need these um, enzyme cofactors for the cellular processes and i I agree entirely there's almost no there are uh, soil banks that's been frozen for decades and decades and other than perhaps between russia and finland there's a tiny little space there there's no because there's always been um, unease between the two countries and the soil hasn't been developed, there's very, very little original soil structure and microbes left. As there are with humans, we may have lost perhaps up to half of our microbiome species only in the last 150 years or so after having been developed as a essential part of our symbiotic system for 500 million years, then suddenly in the last 100 to 150 years, our technological increases have gone far, far beyond our biological (laughs) increases. And as a result of that disruption in our microbiome, not only from the soil, which has changed, so I agree, I don't um, peel carrots or anything either. The more microbes we take in, in general, the better. We want to repopulate our microbiome, not depopulate it. And so we can see why there's autoimmune illnesses or a likely reason why there's autoimmune illnesses. Sometimes it's called an epidemic of depletion we're going through. And so for our microbiome, and that's happening in the soil as well. The monocultures don't happen, don't help that at all. And so when we cut down forests, for instance, which are unbelievably complex, and we put a monoculture, maybe a palm, palm oil plantation there, that is where emerging infectious diseases and or epidemics come more commonly from those areas. Gosh, I hadn't even looked at it like that, but I can see what you're talking about. So what seems to be coming through here as a theme, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that diversity seems to be key too. Absolutely. So diet diversity, the more diversity we have, within reason, the more microbes and variety of microbes we take in, the better diet and the more variety of plants in our soil, the richer that microbiome will be and the better we will be. Mm. You touched on technology and that was going to be one of my next lead-in questions and you've referenced that the growth or the impact of technology has sort of superseded science and you know at a rapid pace and it's changing things up. Um, and in terms of the tools that you might have used in your research 
historically is to say now, do you think some of the knowledge and the insights and the findings that you know you do have presently, you would have had 30 years ago? Absolutely not. Both microbiology and immunology, every discipline in this world, every science in this world goes through periods of paradigm shifts. Einstein with physics, <laughs> paradigm shift. Microbiology and immunology in the last 20 years have gone and are continuing to go through a total paradigm shift in our understanding. No longer is it, longer is it good bugs, bad bugs. No longer should you treat every infection. The light to moderate ones would get better by themselves. Not only does that stop inducing antibiotic resistance and in the process, reducing this amazing miracle of antibiotics, which is getting ever smaller by the month. It's diminishing, so we will no longer be able to treat serious infections. That's bad enough, but almost worse, when we get antibiotic resistance through whole populations, and a common bacteria like Staphylococcus aureus, which causes wound infections and such like, Back in 1943, all Staphylococcus aureus is like a weed in our lawn. We all carry it. That was, they were all susceptible to penicillin. Now 90% of them around the world are resistant to penicillin. Not only is that bad as an indicator of how many people have been treated and how much each of our microbiomes have changed. Well, the resistance, but our microbiomes have all changed too. And that affects our immunity. And that, that is vast. And not only that, it's not just antibiotics. Two of us, uh, Chris de Terling and myself, did an experiment which we published about three or four years ago, taking two, I said we'll take, as a science student graduate, and I said we'll take any two, two drugs. This is based on intuition. We'll take any two common drugs and we'll see if they're antimicrobial. <laughs> and so he said, which drugs are you going to pick? I said, I haven't got a clue. How about we pick ibuprofen, because you can buy it over the counter, and um, what was the other? Uh, Prozac, um, uh, fluoxetine, which is antidepressant. So he took both those and did the studies in triplicate against common microbes, and it utterly annihilated them at normal microbial gut concentration. So if two, the first two we picked, wiped out normal microbial gut flora, that means it's vast. So that comes back to what I was saying about Africa. Everything we take will have an effect. Everything we put on the soil will have an effect. And we may not know it for many years. Mm, so, okay, this leads me to over-sanitizing. We're talking about antibiotic resistance in full measure. Um, if we bring it back closer to home to what's happening at the moment, you can't go anywhere without seeing a little plastic bottle with goop in it. Um, what are your thoughts, Jill, about the risks involved in over-sanitising? Well, the risk in over-sanitisation hasn't just come about with coronavirus. If we look fairly recently even into child-rearing, keeping the child clean, sterile dishwashing liquid, sterile spray and wipes, sterile dishcloths that are sterile, impregnated with sterilising agents, avoiding dirt. This is really where over-hygiene has led to a failure in the development of an immune system. So I'm referring to children here because that's um, the most important and critical stage in the maturation of the immune system where 
exposure to a, an environmental level of an organism that's naturally around will lead to a healthy recognition of that by the immune system. So what that means is it will be tolerated. That also means the body won't mount a pathogenic anti-infectious response when it's not necessary. So this is literally just day-to-day contact with our environment. I think if there's an infection or in the case of a, a highly virulent strain of virus such as our coronavirus, then clearly there's a short-term benefit of stopping the spread if it is true that it can be spread by hand contact as opposed to sneezing or coughing or whatever. But this is a short-term measure. It's not a permanent situation. And um, that's really where there's um, unhealthy hygiene and healthy hygiene for a transient period. I don't think hand sanitizer is going to be the main causative agent for ruining anyone's uh, immune function or immune capacity. I think um, the over-hygiene hypothesis, which is a way of day-to-day living and avoiding all bacteria, literally has led to um, immune susceptibilities that may not have arisen otherwise. Mm. Been, been thoughts? Absolutely. I, I agree totally. Bearing in mind our immune system, our microbiome may have halved. And we know that also from people that have been frozen in glaciers, climbing, climbing accidents in glaciers for 50 years or longer. And uh, Iceman for 5,000 years uh, in the Swiss and um, Italian Alps and from so-called primitive or isolated tribes. I would say there's a difference between clean and hygiene. Can you tell clean us what is, that is? <laughs> yeah, I'm interested. Clean is, uh, clean is visible and, um, and deep clean is a completely meaningless expression, which is used commonly, uh, I, I call it a public pacifier. It's, it's a meaningless expression. It's something that looks, looks shiny and, and, um, and clean. Something can be shiny, but you can cough on it and put COVID all over it, and it'll still be shiny. <laughs> Gosh, that's a scary. You're scaring me now. That's because, right. And you can go to a carpet, yeah. and I guess the only way you get deep clean is if you separate the weft and get the seed further down. <laughs> clean is something visual. Hygiene is something that prevents spreading infection. So I would sooner see a clean home where you used a product that kept 99.9% of the microbes <laughs> and it didn't kill 99.9% of the microbes. So when we're in a domestic environment, we want to keep feeding, for want of a better word, um, as many microbes as we can to our immune system. And to get rid of, why would we want to effectively try and sterilize our surfaces but yet go out and sit on a lawn. It's got trillions of microbes and and have a barbecue or a lunch or something like that. It beggars belief. And that's where we get caught up in a marketing exercise. Also, uh, semi-tied in with us, but different with the microbiome, is a third of us in the, in the industrialized world are now born by a cesarean section. So when babe has essentially no or almost no microbes in its gut and it's waiting as it had for 500 million years with us or our predecessors 
to be the initiation of that gut microbiome for mother's perineal cum fecal flora at birth time to come down and seed uh, the very first critical parts of seeding that gut flora. When a third of us are born by cesarean section, then we bypass that process and our gut is seeded by a different set of microbes. Then that will say little girl that was born, when she has children, once again, it's, it keeps on compounding again and again and again. And, but yes, we want to be exposed. Um, we do not want hygiene at, at um, home except after going to the toilet and washing our hands and perhaps before eating finger food. We want microbes to go in. And I tend to think of microbes and these ecosystems a little bit like reef fish. Um, they're all symbiotically working together. They're all interdependent on everybody else. Occasionally a shark comes in and snaps a few of them, but on the whole they keep on going being interdependent. And normally liquid soap and water on our hands is fine, and that leaves perhaps 10,000 or so bacteria per square centimetre, the reef fish, still on our skin, which is our first line of protection. Now, if I get some influenza virus on my hand, those reef fish on my skin, my normal flora, will inactivate that influenza virus much more quickly if it's there than if it's not there. And so we get some rather uh, perhaps perverse things to think about. If I put alcohol hand rubs on my hand and get rid of all of that, and then I get virus on it. It's actually, it's good at the time if I use it again because it will kill the virus, but there's an upside and a downside to wear. So if I use, I must say, if I use alcohol and hygiene, for whatever the reason, I tend to wipe my forehead to reseed my hands again with microbes from my skin or my forearm. <laughs> it's a bit of a um, <laughs> a battlefield. I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, gosh, how does the average person find that sort of middle ground? Because um, it does seem incredibly, it makes sense on one hand, but on the other hand, it feels complex to be able to achieve that that state that you're talking about of, 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 of real cleanliness and just sustainably being able to. Keep it simple and don't worry, we're more robust than you ever think we are, except at times out of COVID, but that, that's a rare occasion um, where, or when somebody's obviously got a respiratory infection, for instance, have the same principles as COVID if they keep away from others or if you're ill, keep away from them. Otherwise, we're far, far more robust than you ever think. If a sandwich buttered toast falls face down on a carpet, for instance. Three-second roll. I may be more inclined to pick Five it up minute roll people me. would say, that's disgusting. And I, say, I would say... But this morning for breakfast, you thought fibre was good. Now you think it's bad. <laughs> so, it's, um, we are far more robust than people think. Relax and get on with life. I like that. Jill? I'd like to go back to a point Ben made about the transfer of the microbiome during birth. Because actually, I've just been reading some studies in exactly that scenario, loss of microbiome seeding by cesarean. But I'm particularly also interested in um, brain function, so neurochemistry, in fact, which goes back to an earlier point you made about the healthy microbiome cross-talking with the 
brain, which we know is by the vagus nerve. But getting back to the seeding of, of the newborn baby, there's plenty of research most recently coming out that shows a stressed mother who's avoided certain foods in her pregnancy has a stressed microbiome. And when they pass pass it on to their child, they actually end up with a stressed child. And there's been studies linking the stressed maternal microbiome to babies that cry all the time, uh, uh, never have, uh, never satisfied with, with what they're being offered, you know. Um, yeah, it can't settle. And it's actually really interesting. It gets back to Ben's point of propagating the bad is instead of propagating the good. So it gets passed on through the generations. I just think it's really interesting. It, it's not only interesting, it's fascinating, isn't it? Fascinating that our microbiome is malleable and we can feed it or starve it, but it affects every part, every physiological process from the brain, mental processes, depression, happiness, um, through to autoimmune illnesses, cancers, everything it, um, it, it can affect. And so I think the best to look on it is a fascinating thing. Keep eating fruit and vegetables and such like, even uh, which ties on also with what Jill was saying, just extending it a bit more. We know if somebody's stressed, their wounds do not heal so fast. There's an emotional response to you're saying there's sort of an emotional response. The stress is the emotional. And it's just, the, is it cortisol or cortisol what is Cortisol is, yeah. is one of the key stress hormones. Mm. But there's studies that have been published in cardiac patients where they've surveyed post-operatively. They've all had one, the first heart attack. And it was a, a sentinel study. There were patients that thought they would do badly. And there were patients that thought they would recover well. And in the those that thought they were not going to do so well, this is where I think they found at least elevated levels of tumor necrosis factor alpha elevated in, in the blood plasma of the patients who felt they were not going to do very well compared to those that thought they'd be hopping out of bed and skipping down the ward and literally inflamed thinking. It was one of the first mm. lines of evidence that did show when we have inflamed thoughts... We, we get inflamed. Inflamed responses, yeah. Uh, look, you've which both... alters the microbiome. <laughs> it, it's all which comes first, the chicken or the egg, becomes self-ratcheting. <laughs> I was going to say, you've both been like more agreeable than I expected during a conversation. So I'm going to raise. We I'm must have raise. Had a good diet. We've had a good diet. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to sort of throw a cat among the pigeons here because you've talked a bit, Ben, about antibiotics in a less favourable a slightly less favourable light in terms of some of the stresses of antibiotics on the on the body. Uh, so in terms of an opinion around antibiotics, do you think they save us or they diminish our body's natural fighting power? And you're both going to have a go at this, but we'll let uh, maybe we'll let Jill have a go. Jill, you're smiling. I absolutely avoid antibiotics myself and my family at, at all cost. I always look to natural products, medicinal herbs. I'm quite familiar with some of the Indian herbs, for example. But I would say in that regard, I probably am more into traditional medicine than these pharmaceutical compounds. Maybe eating a mouldy cheese might be advantageous. There's lots of undiscovered uh, antimicrobial... In fact, there are lots of undiscovered antimicrobial secretions that we haven't 
well, the pharmaceutical giants haven't capitalised and, and mass-produced. I, I can't remember the last time I personally took antibiotics and I have never prescribed them to either of my children, ever. Mm. Ben? I think... In many ways, they're dreadful things, antibiotics. They're dangerous, toxic drugs. I would never take them unless, and this is where they're brilliant, unless I had a life-threatening illness or a chronic infection, maybe in the bone or something that was getting worse. Otherwise, I would rely on time and my immune system to take care of it. There are one or two exceptions to that, and rheumatic fever, for instance, may well be one, whereby um, even if the infection doesn't appear much, there's an immune reason that can later go on to cause rheumatic fever. So I think they should be used extremely sparingly. We know that New Zealand um, uses sort of two to four times as many antibiotics per person as in the Netherlands, and so they think they use too many. And I was speaking to a... So we should be able to use a third only of the antibiotics that are being prescribed. So you are saying we're over-consuming antibiotics? It's not only slightly, we're hugely, hugely. And some of that, a number of reasons, including patients pay good money, to get a medical appointment and expect an antibiotic and it's a competitive world out there to a certain extent so people can be aware you want a happy patient Um, but underneath it we should be able to prescribe one third of the antibiotics that we do now and we will be better off health wise rather than worse off it's a totally without doubt yet they are miracle agents for those that are critically ill. One third to one half of all patients in acute care hospitals are on antibiotics at any one time, a third to a half. So their entire microbiome will be more resistant uh, because you don't just treat the infection when you take something orally, you treat all your 50 to 90 trillion microbes. And they spread it even with really good hand hygiene. We're like flower bags. When we sit down, we shed microbes into the air. So the hospital care workers, staff, have carry more resistant bugs than the general population, as does the environment. So when that patient departs hospital, hopefully well, but someday who's been on antibiotics, the next patient coming into that room is maybe 20 to 30% chance of picking up the microbes that the previous patient had. Third to half of them are on antibiotics, and it gets more resistant still. So in general, unless you're ill, (laughs) quite ill, clearly your best to stay clear of hospitals too. Rest homes, um, for the last 10 years, um, there's a process using urinary dipsticks. You can tell by dipping dipstick in, are there white cells there? which is an inflammatory response, which may indicate an infection. So most, well, all the rest homes I've had considerable input into, including several chains of rest homes, when I've got them to ban dipsticks, urinary dipsticks, which seem like a simple little thing to use, 20 cents each, 30 cents each, they, those rest home chains have reduced their total antibiotic usage measurably by 60 to 80%. 
when the rest of New Zealand keeps increasing at 10% a year. Jill? To go back to my resilience um, against antibiotics, I, I do agree once someone's in um, ICU and it's saving lives, so systemic infection. So the point about infection is, as I mentioned earlier, it's a, it's a natural microbe, but it got into the wrong compartment. So something on yeah. the skin that's now circulating in the blood. I mean, even back to rheumatic fever, impacted wisdom teeth actually has a very strong link to rheumatic fever. So that's where the blood barrier, which is meant to keep things in and, and keep other things out, actually breaks down under inflammatory stress. Um, and therefore, these um, microbes get into that new compartment. And in fact, it's the same from the from a, a distressed gut. Once that gut barrier function is altered, so we call that increased gut permeability, this is now the, the right bug. It was in the gut, now in the wrong compartment, and, and the circulating microbes um, contribute to um, cardiovascular di disease such as atherosclerosis. And previously we didn't understand the link between bad diet or even obesity and, and heart disease. It's Can not. It's not all cholesterol. I'm just interested because you you referred back. You 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 called natural uh, remedies traditional medicine, and I just wanted to take you back to that because we're talking about you know safeguarding our immunity um, and you know staying away from antibiotics, which we clearly you know as a population aren't. What are the natural medicines or natural traditional solutions to reduce inflammation, to build immunity, and to have all over body wellness? Well, there's actually lots of classes of compounds that exist in nature. There are, we call them phenolic compounds. These are um, naturally um, anti-inflammatory. So by put, being able to put a handbrake on inflammation will um, provide a, perhaps a better environment for wound healing or for altered gut permeability for that um, permeability, that gut barrier to be restored. But also there, there's natural plant peptides. So plants make anti-infective peptides. They're called defensins. How does somebody go about, you know, getting these for themselves? Where do they go? What do they, what do they select without wanting to take a plethora of, of tablets or supplements? Well, that depends on the individual, I think, to a certain extent. So obviously there's a lot of natural healthcare practitioners around and about. So rather than see a GP, look for a, a local um, natural healthcare provider. Ayurvedic medicine is increasingly understood. Again, exploiting natural plant-based remedies. And then we have our traditional Chinese medicines. They're increasing uh, use. Mm -hmm. Certainly in, in um, the first world, uh, such as um, New Zealand. Would the, po you both... the point about a natural remedy is it's not pure. So a lot of pharmaceutical compounds is a reverse engineer of one component of, of uh, uh, an extract that existed in nature. And then often the chemists, you, you know, synthesize that molecule with a few variations to increase stability or change the half-life following consumption or even to target it to a certain compartment. Um, and, and that's where we lose the synergy that nature provided. So there's no single natural product out there that comprises simply one, one active. Sure. 
Sure, and it's a little bit going back to what Ben said, where diversity is key. And I think your advice about going to see a natural health practitioner makes sense because it then it just sort of demystifies, as you you say, the selection that's out there, right? Just, if, just quickly, uh, if just, I can just add in there too. Sorry to interrupt. Just add in there. I mean, if we go back, as I just touched on before, where people live longer, we mustn't forget one: the plant-based product diet, the variety there, which we've well covered. Moderate exercise, uh, good sleep, and a belief system and, and a community. They all help. Uh, that's at a different level to when something specifically goes wrong, but they all help uh, long-term health and longevity um, uh, along the line too. So that I like really that, natural. Ben. I mean, that's sort of an ecosystem, isn't it, that you're sharing? Healthy living. I mean, that question, what, what defines a healthy life, it isn't singularly any one of these it's the combination we know exercise gives positive feedback to our mental state that then feeds into our healthier system because stress is a handbrake Mm. unhealthy thoughts are a handbrake Um, taking off the handbrake uh, allows homeostasis i mean really this is what we're talking about maintaining um, homeostasis which means for every push there's a pull or every every down, there'll be a, an, an up to counteract that and restore balance, like the yin and the yang, literally. Can I can I just change um, tack here because I'm interested? I mean, there's this uh, individualized response, I suppose, to uh, a healthy state and a healthy system, and that we 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 can't take one singular thing or do one singular thing to be healthy and well. I just want to talk about this vaccine that's rolling out at the moment. And that we're all kind of lined up, ready and poised, waiting to be called up as such. What are the risks involved in not taking the vaccine? When COVID arrives in New Zealand, then you're a hugely increased chances of catching the infection. If you um, catch the infection and you're under 50, Statistically, as a percentage form, you're unlikely to die from it. But as you get older, 50, that older than 50 years old, that will increase exponentially your chances of dying uh, each decade going up. And if you have an underlying illness as well, um, brackets, maybe your microbiome's not right, you have an underlying illness as well, that increases again. So if somebody chooses not to get vaccinated and that, under 50, this is where an individual society is not so good. They may increase the chances by spreading it, because they are more likely to spread it, they may increase the chances of passing it on either directly or indirectly of an older person of dying by 100 to 1,000 times. So if we can get herd immunity, um, which is that may possible? be... Is it possible in New Zealand? Well, it's possible, but whether it happens or not, and going through that, at the moment there may be 30% of people uh, what's called vaccine-hesitant or anti-vaxxers. And, but the anti-vaxxers as such only make up about 1% to 3% of, of that 30%, or it might be more, 40%. They make up 1% to 3%. And they're people that tend to think COVID is not real, vaccines are dangerous, and never trust science. But 
the vaccine hesitant are actually really good because they just want more information. And the anti-vaxxers are trying to sway them over to their side and the health um, and academics are trying to say, no, this is a science, but we tend not to understand science so well in the community. So I've spoken to whole audiences which have been vaccine hesitant and at the end, um, lecturers have start firing questions and at the end they've said, we didn't know any of this. Thank you so much. And that's dispelled our fears. So we may need about 80% of the population to get vaccinated to get herd immunity, perhaps on current spreadability or row values. And if there's 30% currently um, vaccine hesitant, then we won't get herd immunity. It's touch and go, isn't it? <laughs> but I have another expression too. The hangman's noose tends to focus the mind. So if they if they had decided not to get vaccinated and then we open the borders and a whole lot of people start dying, they may alter their, change their opinion. In general, we cannot change somebody's mind, but we can give them information which helps them make up their own mind. And do you think that uh, the mindset will shift with the travel bubble opening? It will. For all of those reasons, once once you know in a workplace, for instance, you may think, ah, it's not very serious, is it? And if somebody dies of it, everyone's petrified. They know somebody, they can relate to that, or a family member, etc. So not only when the reality comes, but two, if you know you can never travel overseas again because the airline or the country you want to go to insist you are, that will change a lot of people's minds too. Yeah, it becomes a bit closer to home. Okay, and in terms of just understanding um, superfoods, which is a bit of a hot-button topic we hear a, a lot in this space, particularly recently, I mean, goji berries, I mean, I don't know about you, but I hear a lot about goji berries as superfoods. Jill, what are, what are some of your top superfoods? You're smiling there, you've got things to say. Well, I think the word superfood is just a marketing phrase and goji berry, uh, the berry, you could probably just swap them around. They're all superfoods. Superfood to me means whole, non-processed. So my superfoods are my unpeeled carrots, you know, colour, diversity. I, I do eat a lot of nuts. That Clearly any nut or seed is a superfood because it contains all that's required for the next life cycle. Um, so... I, I tend personally not to follow any marketing trends. And in fact, often I snigger uh, people sitting in the boardroom thinking, oh, what can we call the next superfood? I just think all, all natural food, non-processed, all counts towards the superfood equation. And as Ben said, we need diversity. So you're not going to save your life by eating loads of goji berries uh, and nothing else. So whilst it is a superfood based on its comp nutrient value, its composition of macro and micronutrients. It doesn't really count if that's all you're eating. Yeah, it's that whole point around diversity again, right? Yeah, Colours, right. textures. That, that's right. And I'll have to pick up on the goji berries, but there's a risk if we have too much of one thing that it, it acts against the other. So I, it's that diversity of plant-based products. Nuts clearly have lots for the reasons Jules said. I happen to rather like, um, I didn't used to like vegetables at all, I might add, um, <laughs> coming up farm, farm boy, and I've done a complete change. But the cruciferous vegetables, Professor Robin uh, Fraser 
at uh, Christchurch Hospital, uh, did a lot of work on liver and liver biopsies, and had shown had some wonderful slides with um, broccoli, for instance. It just really cleaned up people's livers, and mm. you could see it microscopically, just a cruciferous vegetable. I've known people who've had repeated Staphylococcus aureus boils for seven years. This one just a couple of years ago. I said, this may sound a little bit... Um, and they'd tried antibiotic causes and all the rest, which hadn't worked. And of course, in the process, it made their immune system worse too, as it happened. But it's um, a balance to consider at the time. I said, this may sound, she was a registered nurse. I said, this may sound a bit wacky, but I'd try having quite a few more cruciferous um, broccoli and such like for a while. And she did, and it completely cleared up, wow. <laughs> uh, which is interesting. If you have a balanced diet you have the bulk of all yeah. the nutrients. Unless you happen to have a particular illness or disease that requires a, a, an identified deficiency. So there's a ton of information out there, right, in the, in the online space. We have Google. We have Dr. Google. But be so careful <laughs> because those uh, – Google's fantastic. What about Dr. Google? Do you like it? There's a thing called confirmation bias, which works really well for books and music. If you like this, you'll also like this <laughs> and so on. But if the first thing you looked up was um, Dr. Previously, till he was struck off the register, Andrew Wakefield showing autism is caused by vaccination, which we know is absolute bunkum, then if that's what you looked up for a start these algorithms will keep bringing up things like that, and that's confirmation bias, which is a real trouble for society to get through. I um, often, well, I work with marketing companies, so I'm also exposed to other people's claims. Where did you find the claim? Or Google. And even simply trying to go back to the original source of the information, so often there might be one scientific publication that's been extracted, rephrased, passed on, then someone's blogging, and then someone else writes a better blog and then frames it with cherry-picked other information to help that proposition stack up. So my advice really is if you can't find the original source of a claim or an opinion, it's probably been made up. But I'm a scientist, so I spend my life actually always peer reviewing fact and land. Yeah. Yeah, doing critical thinking, which I understand the average concerned person over their health might be less able to identify, you know, the fake, the fake news. Mm. But definitely buyer beware. What well, I, thank you. I, what I, I tend to do with those yeah. searches is, because most people are not scientists, as you say, I suggest the first word they put in is evidence or trial or controlled trial put those words in first, then wart cure or something like that, <laughs> whatever you're looking up. And that cuts out 90% of the dross. But if you see one of those references has got dot edu, um, for instance, that may be a scientific one. And even if you don't understand the paper, generally the abstract at the beginning or the conclusion will give you good evidence that you need. Even the title, like part of scientific publication is it should be very obvious what the research is about, whether it's asking a question, studying a disease or working on a solution. Well, you know, it's search, good advice. Yeah. And incredible sites like Centre for Disease Control, CDC, 
and or WHO, World Health Organization, or perhaps Ministry of Health, but um, they're not original articles, and some people shy away from them if they if they happen to be anti um, the system. That can be a little also, bit there's clinicaltrials.govt, so all trials um, should be registered on this global repository. So they, yeah. they have search engines as well, so it's quite easy to navigate if you want to find... Uh, or go through clinical studies. Great. So I just wanted to say thank you because you've both shared some really good practical outcomes for our listeners today because, you know, not everybody knows where to go. Um, You've shared some great links and places where people can go and get some good, I guess, um, reliable information. I just want to take the time to say thank you to you both. You've been uh, really good company during this podcast today. I, I think you have um, obviously backing each other up. There's a lot of nodding and affirmations going on between you, which is actually a nice thing, a collegial nice thing. And I think, you know, you've both added tremendous value to, you know, a pretty complex conversation. And uh, just want to say thank you both for your time. Very welcome. Thanks, Karen. Thanks, Jill. Yeah, lovely to meet you. Thanks for tuning in and joining our conversation. And stay tuned for more episodes. Please rate, review and subscribe. Check out the show notes if you'd like to contact this episode's interviewee. At Source Podcast does not accept any liability for the results of any actions taken or not taken upon the basis of information in this podcast or for any errors or omissions. Those acting upon information do so entirely at their own risk. We recommend that you seek professional assistance from certified doctors for your health and well-being issues.